Hello, and welcome to The Consistency Project with E.C. Sinkowski. My name is Patrick Cummings, and every episode, I have the privilege of having a discussion with E.C. on subject matters that range from nutrition to fitness to the choices we can all make to live a healthier, more functional life by exploring both the principles at play and the actions worth carrying out as a result. It's our goal to get you thinking, get you moving, and get you taking more consistent steps toward optimizing your well-being. Thank you so much for being here and for tuning in. How are you, E.C.? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. wonderful. I feel like you and I haven't talked forever. Not that anyone, know. Uh, nobody else will notice this because we show up every <laughs> week, but for some reason, it just feels like we haven't done this in a while. So I'm excited to get back at it. And I'm particularly excited about this subject because we're going to talk about continuous glucose monitors. And if for yeah. some reason, it's one of the, like, I keep seeing it everywhere. Well, <laughs> definitely keep... not go to a website because you will then get <laughs> slammed. Yeah. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe I checked one out and now I'm just inundated with it all over the internet. Because I've been curious, like, I don't know what this thing is and why does it exist? And so when I saw that we were going to talk about this uh, this week, I was excited. So yeah. let's do a little bit of background. Like I said, continuous glucose monitors. What is it? What do we need to know in order to have a conversation about it? Yeah. I mean, I think the first general thing I just wanted to mention is we actually talked about them a little bit in our biohacking podcast, which probably at this point was over a year ago. So I'm, yep. I'm not everyone maybe went through all of the archives or maybe remembers that, but yeah, I mean, I get a lot of questions about continuous glucose monitors. I'm also going to call them just CGMs as we go through this. And they seem to be really popular with people who don't really need them. So here we are now with a full podcast, not just referring to the biohacking one. Yep. And so I want to talk about like who and why CGMs can be absolutely essential for, and then also why they also have this aspect of junk science for people. Mm. And I think it, in a lot of the people that are asking me about them, it's a really great example. Another great example of kind of capitalizing on the worried well phenomenon that we've talked about, this notion of health optimization that's really not defined, not proven or relevant for people. Got it. Okay. So we can guess at the, what this thing does, right? It, <laughs> it monitors glucose continuously. Right. Why is that important? And maybe what do we need to know about just the mechanics of it or the, or the, the details of it so that we can kind of get into why it might be junk science Yeah. or partly junk science. Par partly junk science, the nuance of partly junk science. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So CGMs, no surprise, they're tracking your blood glucose. We can mm -hmm. say that also as blood sugar and we need a constant supply of blood sugar for energy. And there's problems though, if it gets too high or too low. Now, glucose is the form of sugar in circulation and it's a supply of energy for many different cells to include the brain in particular, which needs a steady supply of it. Now we can make, and this is for my very low carb or keto folk, we can make glucose from protein and fat sources. So this is why carbs necessarily aren't essential, but when we do eat carbs, they also are going to be the direct supply of this glucose. And it's the liver, in addition to the hormones from the pancreas, the hormones glucagon and insulin, that are responsible for keeping this steady supply of glucose present. The liver will store glucose as glycogen, and when blood sugar drops too low, it's the hormone, hormone glucagon that is released from the pancreas to then have this liver increase blood sugar in circulation. And then after we eat, blood sugar goes up from the food we just ate, insulin is released to get the nutrients out of the blood and stored into cells. That would bring the blood sugar back down. And this is a pretty tightly controlled system. We only have about one teaspoon of blood sugar present in circulation, 
Now, of course, there are some waves and valleys of this because it, it peaks after meals and then comes back down. But there is a range here in which we kind of have normal operating function. Let's just say the extremes of this normal operating function are 70 milligrams of glucose per deciliter of blood at the low end up to 140 milligrams per deciliter. This doesn't perfectly describe everyone. We've got a short podcast, folks. So let's just stick there. <laughs> but it's the liver and the pancreas that manage this process in otherwise healthy individuals. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then too high or too low, like I said, that's where we have some health consequences. Too low is hypoglycemia, usually defined as when blood sugar drops below that 70 milligrams per deciliter. And you're also going to have symptoms, shaky, jittery, dizzy, hungry, hungry, lightheaded, can't see or speak clearly, erratic heartbeat, this type of stuff. It also can get really severe into seizures and loss of consciousness. And so without treatment, this can ultimately lead to coma or death. I do need to make an aside, as I always do, Patrick. <laughs> but, you know, I think people throw around this notion that they have low blood sugar all the time. Right. Yeah. Like they can't focus at 3 p.m. at the office and they need some quick energy supply. They've got low blood sugar. A lot of us don't. I think a lot of us are just kind of that mental fatigue. We, we just need a break from staring at a monitor and sitting for mm. too long that we probably have enough energy around. It's not that really we have this dangerously low blood sugar because you would not only have those symptoms of like, I'm hungry, but you'd also need to see that your blood sugar, blood sugar is below that 70 Mm -hmm. milligrams per deciliter cutoff. So I just need to say that because I think a lot of people think they have low blood sugar when, when really they don't. But hypoglycemia is a real thing. Not good. Very serious. We need to avoid it. At the other end of the spectrum, we've got hyperglycemia. And that's, of course, blood sugar is too high. This is how diabetes is diagnosed. For example, you're diagnosed with diabetes if your fasting blood sugar is greater than 126 milligrams per deciliter. And chronically high blood sugar will lead to a host of lots of different complications. And that's because this chronically high blood sugar does damage blood vessels. And blood vessels bring our oxygen and nutrients everywhere in the body. So obviously, if those aren't functioning well, we have a problem. This is why we see effects in diabetes from the cardiovascular system to the neurological system like neuropathy, which is so common in diabetics. Hyperglycemia is not good, obviously. The problems with it are also less emergency, less immediate. You know, from NIH, we've got an estimated 7 million people in the U.S. that have diabetes and undiagnosed. So they probably mm. have some symptoms that are associated with it, but it's not this immediate coma and death like hypoglycemia, right? So finally, just to kind of wrap this all up to answer your question, yes, CGMs are monitoring your blood glucose, and they're particularly useful when we're outside these normal ranges because of the health consequences there. We don't want to get too low with hypoglycemia. We don't want to get too high with hyperglycemia. As it relates to the CGMs, obviously many people, most people don't wear one. Yeah. And so therefore, is it right to assume that they are for diabetics kind of outside those normal ranges that yeah. you just laid out? Is that kind of like, like that's the point of them? That's, that's the why they exist? Yeah, generally. Okay. Yeah, there certainly are other con conditions that can cause hypo or hyperglycemia. It's a little bit outside the scope of the podcast, but diabetes is definitely going to be the most common scenario because diabetes, we don't have good control of blood sugar. That's essentially what mm -hmm. the disease is. And the effectiveness of these CGMs are really going to be for insulin-dependent diabetes and really to prevent hypoglycemia. And, and for healthy individuals, it's your liver and your pancreas that are, that are doing this quite well without you meddling in the process. And without you watching <laughs> what exactly mm. they're doing. So, <laughs> so let's get into the distinction here for diabetics. So we've got the two types of diabetes and there's a lot of nuances here. We're staying pretty general as we always do. Type one diabetics are 
classified primarily by the inability to make insulin. And they also don't really have a normal glucagon response. But this is why our type 1 diabetics have to take insulin. Now, the big issue for type 1 diabetics with this insulin dosing when they take it is whether that dose is appropriate. Because lots of different things are going to affect how much insulin they need. How big is the meal? What are the different foods that they combined in that meal? We react to different foods differently. How low is their blood sugar before the meal? And so this is what diabetics learn with time and experience with the types of foods that they eat and sort of their schedule and all that stuff, how they get better and better at knowing what the proper insulin dose should be. Because the big risk with overdosing insulin is hypoglycemia making Mm. your blood sugar drop too low. You gave yourself too much storage hormone. You might drop your blood sugar to those dangerous hypoglycemic levels. And so this is type one, why type ones typically carry around blood glucose tablets or some other quick energy supply because they need to make sure that they stay out of that really low range. And the CGMs Mm -hmm. will help them know this. Now for type ones, the CGMs can also help them stay out of hyperglycemia. And again, maybe not as urgent, but certainly people who don't have an insulin supply, we wouldn't want them to have chronically high blood sugar either because of those complications that we know of damaging blood vessels. So this is another way that the type ones are really going to be protecting both those low and high ends with the CGM. Then we have the type two diabetics. What is going on with type two diabetics and their insulin is a little bit less consistent across all people who have type two diabetes, but this is the more common type of diabetes. 90 to 95% of diabetics in the U S are type two. Generally, very generally type two diabetics typically have enough insulin. It's that their body doesn't respond to it as it should. And so this is what we know to be insulin resistance. The body doesn't respond to insulin to have the blood sugar move from circulation into the cells. And so this is why blood sugar then stays too high chronically, AKA hyperglycemia. And this is why there's so much directed at type two diabetics about trying to keep their blood sugar low. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to spend more time on this because it would just get too much in the weeds. It's important to note, though, that insulin resistance isn't just about carb intake, that too much fat intake can make insulin resistance worse as well. And so this is why, like the American Dietetics Association doesn't recommend, you know, only low carb or only keto to type two diabetics. They really focus on proper quantity control, which should sound familiar to our audience. Now, unlike type ones that will manage blood sugar with CGMs and insulin, Type 2 diabetes is managed in multiple ways. It might just be managed through diet and exercise. It might be managed through oral medications like metformin, which helps control blood glucose. And some do use insulin. About 30% of type 2 diabetics use insulin because they will stop producing insulin at some point. And so... Once we get into this realm of somebody who's now using insulin, it's that red flag of we need to be worried about hypoglycemia, just like we talked about for the type ones. Now, you could ask, okay, well, isn't the CGM also going to prevent hyperglycemia for type twos? And it's like, no, because remember what their baseline is. (laughs) To be diagnosed as a type two diabetic, you are diagnosed by having hyperglycemia. They have that. That's their background right now. They don't need a minute to minute continuous monitor telling them that (laughs) Mm. they have it, right? They don't need a reminder of that constantly. So to wrap this all up, CGMs are really best used for insulin dependent diabetics, which are generally type one and some type twos. And so by the numbers, most of the time, we're going to find that this is used effectively with type one diabetics. 
Okay. So given that, and especially given the, the percentage of mm. folks with diabetes is very, very small as it relates to type one versus type two, why do I keep seeing CGMs <laughs> in my Instagram feed? Like other than the, I visited a website and I regret it immediately, right. <laughs> but like, why am I a target in any way, shape or form for this idea, for this, for these brands, for this product? From what I can tell, the main messaging for CGMs for otherwise healthy individuals like yourself is this idea of either weight loss or mm -hmm. we're back to how to optimize your health. Mm -hmm. And so I also went to a couple CGM websites. And so I'm also getting the same ads <laughs> that you're seeing, but I wanted to kind of read some of their web copy because I think it really illustrates the hook that they mm -hmm. use to get people. So quote, continuous glucose monitoring can help with real time objective actionable information about how food and lifestyle choices affect glucose levels. It's possible to create an individualized diet to support optimal health. Recent research shows that in 2018, 80% of consumers found conflicting information about food and nutrition, and 59% say that makes them doubt their choices. The beauty of objective data is that it cuts through the noise, end quote. <laughs> so they're okay. really selling you on this idea that you're going to get this individualized, optimized diet because you're using all of this scientific data. Okay, that's the hook. The real problem is any data, <laughs> just data generally, doesn't cut through the noise. <laughs> mm -hmm. For the data to cut through the noise, it would need to be relevant <laughs> to the problem that you're trying to solve. And minute-to-minute -minute glucose trends are not relevant to that, not for weight yeah. loss and not to quote, optimize your health. And so I did a recent post on Instagram about CGMs and one of the commenters really explained the problem about them quite eloquently for otherwise healthy individuals. So thank you, Caitlin and RD. She described them as both too little and too much information at the same time. Mm. And I was like, wow, that's it. That's <laughs> a perfect way to describe yeah. what's going on with these. And so before we get into the whole blood glucose thing, I wanted to just start with an analogy because I think it will help ground this idea of both too little and too much. And I picked the idea of like, let's say that you're the head of finance of some retail, retail store, maybe it's a department store or something like that. Having a continuous glucose monitor is though you monitored each transaction of sales, returns, and expenses to make decisions about profitability. Like every day you just sit at the office and you're just getting pinged with notifications. Like, okay, we just sold a hundred dollars in dishes. We're doing really well. Oh shoot. The staff just bought $1,500 worth of cleaning supplies. <laughs> oh no, we're in the red, right? Oh gosh, we just sold $200 worth of merchandise. We're heading back to black. You know, can you just imagine going through transaction by transaction and trying to make heads or tails of what you should do with the business? And mm -hmm. so this is an example of too much data. You're getting into the minutia of these minute by minute updates. And despite the fact fact that you have all this quote data, it's too little to really know what's actually going on. So what would you actually want to know? You would want something like, I don't know, a monthly profit and loss report, right? You'd want to know mm -hmm. the net balance of all of those transactions and then possibly look for trends relative to preceding months and then maybe drill down if any of the trends are concerning. But we first need to understand the system comprehensively, in this case, the profit and loss statement before any of those individual data pieces could quote cut through the noise. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, what would be the equivalent profit and loss statements for your weight if that's your goal? Okay, this one's obvious, your weight. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
that's going to tell you where you are on the profit and loss statement. Now, what about the health, specifically the metabolic health is that they always phrase it. That's just talking about how your metabolism is doing. Well, your doctor does these at your annual physical. The common ones are your fasting glucose or your glycosylated hemoglobin. That's how HGA1C is the acronym I'll say. And that measures your blood glucose, not in the immediate moment, but kind of gives you an average snapshot of what happened over the last few months. Mm -hmm. And so you can compare your weight or your fasting glucose to accepted norms. And I know that those aren't always perfect standards, but they give us a sense of whether or not you're quote, you know, in the black or red, so to speak. And it's useful to look at the trends, like not just if your weight or your fasting glucose is good today, but what's happening it to over time. And those are really your best leading indicators of your health. Contrary to the message that's being pushed with CGMs, those metrics of your current weight and your fasting glucose are time sensitive enough. We don't need to get much more specific to that. And, and so if you, for example, you start to see the fasting glucose creep up over months or between your annual physicals, like that's enough time to then reverse what you're doing with your diet or to start doing more exercise. It's not that you just went on a weekend bender, you ate all this stuff out there and wham, you now all of a sudden have type two diabetes. And so we don't need to get more up to the minute information than what those markers already provide. And so you just really want to think about it as I'm going to look at trends, just like I would with a profit and loss statement with my weight, with my fasting glucose to give me the information that I need about these outcomes that I care about. So let's imagine that after six months or two quarters or three quarters, the trend for us is not going in the right direction. Yeah. Profits are going down. Losses are going up. Weights going up, yeah. not down. Right. In that respect, in that case, our CGMs useful to, I don't know, right the ship to move mm. us back in the right direction, to move us in a trending in the right direction, mm. even if it's maybe, I don't know, temporary, we just do that to kind of right the ship and, and move on. Yeah. Or even there, is there a better strategy for turning a bad trend into a better trend? Yeah, I think there's a better strategy. You know, if weight's going up and fasting glucose is going up, it's going to come back to a diet quantity thing. Mm. <laughs> no surprise probably to our audience. We talk about that a lot, but trying to manage meal to meal blood sugar response is not really how to change the outcome. And, and so this is where the data is not even relevant, kind of how I said in the very beginning, yeah. like what's the data that's relevant? How much total food are you eating measured in calories or macronutrients? That's the data that would be relevant. In this case for weight gain or increasing fasting glucose, you're eating too much for your body ne body's needs. Now, remember we ate macronutrients such as carbs or fat and the body has to do something with those carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen molecules that they are made of. And they might use those molecules for structures or tissues or whatever molecules. They might be used directly for energy. They might store them in fat and your genetics determine how much storage you have in fat. But what happens to the quantity of those carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen molecules if it exceeds all of those sort of endpoints? Well, there's no place for it to go. They end up in circulation. Voila, fasting glucose goes up, triglycerides go mm -hmm. up, all those markers that we talk about. But how we correct that is by adjusting the total quantity in the diet. And yes, we could talk about quantity looking across an entire week or a month, but the tracking of that gets a little bit too burdensome. So we just use days because that's how our mind and our life works. And mm -hmm. so suppose that we need to, uh, in this case, if we wanted to adjust the total quantity down to reverse the trend, we need to eat less than we currently are. So suppose that somebody would target, I don't know, 2000 calories for that. To hit 2,000 calories, they could eat 1,000 calories at breakfast and then maybe 500 calories at lunch and dinner to get there. 
yes, blood sugar will go up more so at breakfast than lunch mm -hmm. or dinner. And it's supposed to, and that's fine. It's mirroring how much just came in. That's a normal response. And they will get the same outcome in terms of weight or improving their fasting glucose as the person who eats four 500 calorie meals. Mm -hmm. Even though the blood sugar at none of those, or those early right. two meals, right, didn't go up as the 1,000-calorie breakfast. Yep. Yet there's yep. this, all this messaging out there to suggest that person number two is going to be better off than person number one. And that's not true. Focusing on this meal-to-meal -meal information on what blood sugar and insulin is doing is too little data. It never gives the big picture of what the total quantity is. It's not the data to focus on. And again, it's just under this guise of, well, I'm collecting all of this data. And it's like, yes, you're collecting data that's not relevant to the problem. Okay. So I'm going to guess that the answer to this is no, but is there any scenario by which you might recommend outside of a diabetic taking insulin, these monitors being useful at all? Yeah. This is where there's just like a ton of nuance and gray. In some cases, if they are what create a positive behavior change, then it's useful, even if the data mm. itself wasn't useful. And we talked about this mm -hmm. a little bit in the Predicting Optimal Performance podcast, these apps that are like measure recovery or something like that. Yep. People do respond to gamification. People respond well to getting instant feedback. They respond well to getting likes or hearts or <laughs> whatever it is. And so a really, really general qualitative way that these may be able to help people because largely we tend to overeat the same stuff. We tend to overeat the processed mm. carbs and fat. And when eaten in excess, yes, those are going to make your blood sugar go up more than salmon on a bed of arugula. <laughs> <laughs> so if you take somebody, maybe it's a type two, but just take the otherwise healthy individual who wants to lose 15 pounds or something like that. Blood sugar will go up higher after the pint of ice cream than after the salmon and broccoli or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so this is where people get this immediate feedback of like, oh, I shouldn't be eating this. And maybe they start to make better choices. And this is where maybe they're correcting this trend of overreading the process stuff. And when they do that enough, quantity shifts such that we get the results that we want. But it's not this mm -hmm. correcting of the individual blood sugar spike that mattered. It's the correction of the behavior that mattered. And so do people need continuous glucose monitors to tell them that the pint of ice cream was too much? Well, I guess if it ultimately drives the outcome that they want, then then yes. But for most people, I don't know that we need that. Like, you know, mm -hmm. no, we should not eat the pint of ice cream. And so for me, I find that the value of a lot of these apps and trackers on this data, it's like the data isn't really relevant. I think when people see a positive outcome, it's because they got some motivation or accountability to stick with the behavior change. Yeah. And, and we've talked about this a little bit before, and you kind of just alluded to it. Can't the argument be made that if that's all it's doing, if all it's, if the gamification, the data, the, the ping on your phone is the motivating factor to the behavior change and the behavior change is what actually affects all the things that we're trying to affect. Isn't that a good thing? It is. The question is, though, like, is it really doing that? When we look mm. and see, like, how much behavior change is being changed, <laughs> what do we find? <laughs> I did find a meta-analysis looking at type 2 diabetics that compared continuous glucose monitors to what's kind of an, a more traditional method called self-monitoring, where people would use, like, the finger sticks. And they did find that CGMs 
significantly changed HGA1C or kind of longer term blood glucose, which is good, but it only changed it to a statistical significant amount, not enough that would be considered clinically relevant. It's sort of like talking mm. about, oh, I lost a quarter pound on this diet. Like no, no, nobody really cares. Right. It's just not enough right. to be interesting. So it begs the question of like, is it actually driving this behavior change? Because if it's doing that for diabetics, then great, I'm all in. But but so far it doesn't seem to be that. And so therefore there isn't a consensus for type twos to be using CGMs absent of this insulin dependence. And then for otherwise healthy individuals, we've got this problem of what is the harm of irrelevant data? Mm. You know, we also know that people respond to different foods and combinations differently. Like some people's blood sugar goes higher after eating a banana than a cookie. And yes, there is a study that says that it's the ZV, I believe, paper in the show notes. So it's not even clear that we should be having this singular focus on lower blood sugar at all costs. Because in this case, the person would walk away thinking they should eat more cookies than the banana, which although sounds nice <laughs> at surface value, we, we ultimately know definitively that's not what we would be recommending to an individual. So maybe we don't yeah. really know what's going on in these natural healthy ranges. The other rub is that different CGMs can give different results. So there's a Howard paper in the show notes where two FDA approved devices for diabetics show different blood sugar responses to the same meals. So here, mm -hmm. depending on which device you use, you might be being told, oh, this is good or this is bad. That's not a great scenario. And then we can't forget about these potential neuroses from these things. I mean, imagine being told incorrectly that there is some threat to your well-being every day that just doesn't exist. I'm not sure the trade-off is worth it. And so as a, an example of this, there's a New York Times article that I'll put a link in the show notes. And of course, they're talking about the power of data collection and, and CGMs and the individual notices that his blood sugar goes, quote, sky high after his lunch of salmon on salad. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to let us know that he realized the salad was, quote, drenched in balsamic vinegar. And so he, he realizes that balsamic vinegar has lots of sugar and he makes a decision to switch to red wine vinegar. And now he has a much better blood sugar response. Oh, my gosh. Like, find me the person who has metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance because of balsamic vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Just, you know, give me the break. And yet I'm sure some people after reading that article decided to switch from balsamic vinegar because it quote has too much sugar. It needs to be eliminated in diet. And so it's this type of false health data that is just ripe for people who have disordered eating tendencies all under the guise of health optimization. And again, it's just remind me of why we can't track on the data that matters. Like, why can't we find a way to gamify the data that is relevant? And, and the problem is that I, it's just not new. Like tracking on calories is not new. Perhaps it's mm -hmm. not sexy enough. Perhaps it's not real time enough. And so that's really where it's a, it's a hard sell. I love the question you asked. What is the harm of irrelevant data? Mm. I think I, that's really interesting to me. Because it strikes me, we've talked about this before, we talked about it in a few other podcasts we already mentioned today, specifically the one about the recovery, which is like, yeah, we can get all of this data. So mm -hmm. <laughs> what is it actually accomplishing? And I think that that's, I think we get suckered into the marketing end of things. We get suckered into the, the arguments made by, you know, okay, this is what I've been looking for. This will finally give me the clarity that I need to cut through the noise, right? Mm -hmm. When in many cases, they're the ones creating the noise so that they can make the argument that they have the clarity that you've been looking for. Thank you. Thank you. That's another great way to say it. Creating the noise yeah. to then provide the solution, creating the problem to then provide the solution. Right. I remember I was looking around at some different 
companies and in health tech. And I remember looking at a company and one of their big projects was to figure out from all this big data collection of the five biggest risk factors for developing heart disease. And so they're going to do this huge project to collect all these different aspects of people's life and stuff like that. And I'm like, why? Mm. It's going to be diet quality, diet quantity, (laughs) exercise, sleep, maybe stress. Yep. Like, what are you collecting? <laughs> you know, you're going to spend millions and millions of dollars to figure out these risk yeah. factors that have already been shown time and time again. Oh, and we know the majority of people aren't doing them. Yep. You know, it'd be one thing if, you know, 99% of the population ate the right diet, quality, quantity, exercise, and sleep, and now we have all and this we heart disease. Broken. Right, and yeah. we were still broken. And oh my gosh, like now we really need to figure out like what the heck yeah. are... But, Guys, you know, 80 to 90% of people aren't eating enough fruits and vegetables. Over 70 people are overweight. 67% of people aren't getting enough exercise. I mean, you know, what are we collecting data about? We need to be focusing yeah. on how to create behavior change. And maybe it is through gamification. Obviously, apps are very addictive. But how can we create, be- like, meaningful behavior change, not just collecting data in the sense of I feel like I'm doing something? I don't, I don't know if there is an episode in it, but maybe just kind of put it in the back of your mind. Like, I would love to hear your broader thoughts. Mm on health tech, which Mm. is something that we're surrounded with, especially this audience, especially the communities that we have have kind of grown up in over the last 15 or whatever number of years now. I'm just putting it out there for you to start thinking about. It's like, is there any health tech, whatever that falls into that bucket, that you look at and say, okay, that's there. Like, that's useful. That's helpful. That's whatever, whatever, that's valuable. And everything else is, you know, like we said at the top of this, is like partly junk science. Mm-hmm. I'd be really curious what your thoughts are on the broader health tech what industry. Yeah, cool. I'll put it on the really list. Consider it on cool. the list, Patrick. You don't have to send me an email. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right, DC, anything else as we wrap up this conversation about continuous glucose monitors? Worth mentioning or you want to get out of here? I think that's it. All right. Perfect. Thank you, everybody out there for listening. Thank you for your ratings and your reviews. EC and I will be back for another episode of The Consistency Project next week. Hi, all. EC here. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the show. Thank you as well for all the support for the five-star ratings and the reviews and for telling your friends or family about the podcast that really does help the podcast grow. And if you want to get the most recent info from me and be up to date on all of my content, the best place for that is my email list. So you can subscribe at optimizemenutrition.com slash email. I send out emails weekly-ish, <laughs> and that's also the best place to get your question in the queue for Quick Bites episodes. So again, that's optimizemenutrition.com slash email, and there's also a link in the show notes.